if we look at life satisfaction as happiness, being satisfied with your life, being overall happy, we can see around 15% of your happiness is connected with your home. We can also see that we as human beings, we behave in different ways. We feel different things depending on where we are. I'm sure you experience, as I do and, and your listeners do as well, we walk into a place, we walk into a room, and it just feels nice, or into a room where you feel the opposite. And what is it about streets, cities, homes, rooms that makes us feel nice? That's what I wanted to explore mm-hmm. and sort of understand what, what is the architecture of happiness. Hello, and welcome to the Minimalist Moms podcast. I'm Diane. I'm a mother of three living in Columbus, Ohio. I'm trying to make room in my life for what matters by getting rid of the clutter and living life with purpose. I hope you'll join me on the journey to think more and do with less. Can our homes make us happier? Can we design for well-being? Can we create better homes where we not only live but thrive? Mike Viking believes the answer to these questions lies in the Danish hygge phenomenon, which he popularized a few years ago with his best-selling The Little Book of Hygge. On today's podcast, Mike is here to talk about his new book, My Huga Home, and he shares how you can use light and space to create your happy place to celebrate coziness the Danish way, sharing simple tips based on new research from the Happiness Institute, plus much more. But before we get there, I want to share an answer to a question that I've been asked several times over the past few years. The question is, what type of gift, if any, should I bring to my children after an anniversary or work getaway? So I think it's a really great question, and I figured a lot of people may wonder how to minimize this area of unnecessary gift giving. My advice to you, and this may be radical to say, but I think you should skip the gift. Instead, make sure you make your return home one that is genuine and intentional. Give your child a really big hug and express to them how much they were missed. Tell them that you'd love to spend some quality time together to catch up. Even if you have an older teen, you could go grab coffee from the drive-thru together. But don't feel guilty for the lack of a gift. The time away was about you, and in this case, their significant other. Think about it this way. What does a gift represent? It's a symbol that represents the fact that you thought about the person while you were away. You were missing them while you were away. I recommend saying these things directly to them. I hope this is encouraging to you as so many of us do live with the guilt of not having gotten someone a gift when we're away on vacation, a business trip, or even a night away. The high of the experience will last longer than the high of the gift. And as always, if you are someone who does show love with gift giving, I suggest consumables over clutter. All right, let's get into this conversation with Mike Viking. Mike, thank you so much for joining me on the Minimalist Moms podcast. Thanks, Diana. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you here. I have read your previous books years ago, and it got me interested in Huga, which define what Huga is, and then we'll introduce you and get to our conversation. I think the best short definition of Huga is the art of creating a nice atmosphere. It's also been called sort of uh, cocoa by candlelight. It's been called being consciously cozy. I like to sort of help people understand what it is by using an anecdote of a time I was in Sweden with a group of friends. 
And I think it was December and we had been out hiking in the afternoon and came back to the cabin when the sun was setting. And there was a fireplace in the cabin. So we got the fire going and we had also prepared a stew. So we got that boiling as well. And those were sort of the sounds in the cabin, the fire in the fireplace and the stew boiling. And we were just sort of relaxing in our comfy clothes, enjoying a glass of wine and each other's company. And then one of my friends said, could this be any more hugely, which is the adjective of the word. And then another one said, yes, if there was a storm outside because who is also this feeling of being sheltered from the outside. Yes. And so all that to say, I'm looking outside right now, I'm in Ohio and there's snow on the ground. It's so peaceful and it gives that sense of huga. I just want to snuggle inside. However, can you experience huga throughout the summer months? I mean, this originated in Denmark, Sweden. So what does that look like in the summer months? I mean, huga happens throughout the year. It's also hugely to go on a picnic with your friends or have a barbecue. Oh. But I think it happens throughout the year, but it's something Danes do more in the wintertime. Okay. And I think Danes see Hugo as a survival strategy for winter. It's mm-hmm. cold, it's dark, it's wet. It's an attempt to make the best of the situation you are in. So Hugo's also been called sort of the perfect night in, just enjoying where you are. It's interesting. So Ohio, that's fairly north yes. in the US, right? I recently, for my latest book, also looked at where in the US do people Google Hugo the most? There's a quite clear pattern there. The first the north you are, the more popular Hugo is as a term to Google at least. The top state was Vermont, and we see Hugo the less in Alabama and, and Florida like that. And I think, yeah. you know, your northern states, big variations, summer, winter in terms of light. So I think that perhaps that's that's a similarity between you and, you and I. Absolutely. Well, I am jumping ahead of myself. We're already talking about Hugo. You have a new book out, My Hugo Home, How to Make Home Your Happy Place. But who am I speaking to? Why don't you introduce yourself? (laughs) (laughs) Valid point. So I run something called the Happiness Research Institute here in Copenhagen. Um, I actually have a 10-year anniversary this year. started back in 2013. And I know it sounds like a magical place full of puppies and unicorns and ice cream. Unfortunately, that's only Wednesdays. So basically, we are 10 people and we are trying to look at happiness, well-being and quality of life from a scientific perspective. So I spend all my time on three questions together with my team. We try to figure out how can we measure the life. Secondly, why are some people happier than others? And thirdly, what can we do to improve quality of life? So we run projects around those topics, basically. What made you choose that career path? And what made you interested in studying happiness? I've always been interested in people and understanding why we do what we do. And then this must be 11 years ago, I was working for another think tank in Copenhagen that focused on sustainability. But this was the fall of 2012. One late evening in the office, I stumbled upon something called the World Happiness Report. It was commissioned by the UN. It had just been published. And it sort of presented the latest findings and methods in happiness research. And it also gave a list, a ranking of happiness levels in different countries around the world. And there was 150 odd countries in that ranking. And Denmark, my country, was in first place. And I had often seen different quality of life, livability, well-being rankings where Denmark and the other Nordic countries, Sweden, Norway, Finland, Iceland, were doing well in these rankings. And I thought, there should be somebody looking into this. Why is that the case? Somebody should create a think tank on happiness. And then I thought, maybe I should do that. 
And I, I just thought it would be really, really fun to work with. And I was laying awake at night thinking about different studies you could conduct, looking at how cities impact well-being, how, speaking in the theme of, of your podcast, parenthood, how does minimalism or consumption impact well-being? So I just really wanted to work with that. Long story short, I got the idea, I quit my job and, and started out with what I thought was a good idea and a bad laptop. And I think that's going to be the best decision that I'm going to make in my career. So you found that there is a connection between cultivating a space that is cozy and is inviting, especially for us that live in colder climates because we're maybe not outside as often. So what are you seeing with research is the connection between our homes and our happiness level? Well, we did a large study around this at the Happiness Research Institute a couple of years ago. We looked at 10 different countries. We looked at 13,000 homes and we looked at, as you say, the relationship between your home and your overall happiness. If we look at life satisfaction as happiness, being satisfied with your life, being overall happy, we can see around 15% of your happiness is connected with your home. We can also see that we as human beings, we behave in different ways. We feel different things depending on where we are. I'm sure you experience, as I do and, and your listeners do as well, we walk into a place, we walk into a room, and it just feels nice, or into a room where you feel the opposite. And what is it about streets, cities, homes, rooms that makes us feel nice? That's what I wanted to explore mm -hmm. and sort of understand what, what is the architecture of happiness. It was also written during the pandemic. And even before the pandemic, we spent so much time indoors, and that was certainly the case during the pandemic. And I think the pandemic opened up people's eyes to the importance of our homes in terms of our well-being. And I think the pandemic taught us a lot of things, but also that it's a turbulent world. It still is. There's a war going on in the European continent. There's a cost of living crisis. And there's a lot of things out there I cannot control or do not have influence over. But I do have influence over my home. I do have influence over what the atmosphere is going to be. I do have influence over what's for dinner tonight. We're having fish cakes, by the way. <laughs> That's what I also wanted to do with the book. I wanted to help readers focus on what we can control and sort of stack the deck in our favor when it comes to happiness. The idea for the book came actually five years ago. As you mentioned, I've written about Hugo before. I wrote something called The Little Book of Hugo. And I spoke to a Canadian reader afterwards. And in that book, there's an entire chapter around lighting. And there's a lot of talk about candles because Danes use candles because it impacts the atmosphere. So this Canadian reader, he read about that and he went out and he bought some candle holders and he started to light candles for dinner at home with his family. Him and his wife have three teenage sons and, and the teenagers, they started to tease their dad. Dad, what's going on with the candles? Do you want to have some romantic time with mom? Should we leave? But he told me eventually the boys, they were the ones that started to light the candles for dinner. And it became this family ritual of family dinners. But most importantly, he says, our family dinners now last 15 to 20 minutes longer because the atmosphere around the table changes how the boys act and it puts them in a storytelling mode. So they sit down, they sip their wine and they talk about their day. And I thought, okay, candles are probably not going to change the world, but isn't it interesting how a little change around a dinner table changes how a family interacts? Yeah. And what else can we do in terms of designing our home that has a positive impact on our well-being and quality? So that was the ambition of the book.
I like how you say design with daylight, but that's something that we can incorporate because I'm thinking about busy moms. I have all different types of moms listening. And sometimes it's like, oh, how do I create coziness in my home? I have these kids running around or making messes. And I do think that minimalism is a really important thing to implement in the home so I can easily clean up a mess. But if I have clutter on top of that, messes take a lot longer to clean up. So applying minimalism is one of the first things we can do to create that huga sense of coziness and warmth. And like you said, when you walk into a room, it's just you lower your shoulders and you relax. And so what would you recommend for moms to create that cozy space, regardless of their kids and their ages and whatnot? Doing what you are probably often recommending that they are doing in terms of minimalism. So if we look at the study I talked about before, the 13,000 homes, what drives happiness in those homes? One of the main barriers of being happy with your home is clutter. It was actually the best predictor of whether people were satisfied with their homes or not. And I think we have a tendency to bring a lot of crap into our homes. In the book, I also talk about the different strategies to sort of counter that. I'm sure you and, and all your listeners are familiar with Marie Kondo, who, who talked yes. about decluttering your homes. I think we can do a little bit better than that in terms of pre-cluttering, not spending money on bringing that stuff into our homes in the first mm-hmm. place. And in the book, I give this example of a dough dispenser, which is a completely ridiculous kitchen tool that gives you the same portion of dough when you're cooking pancakes every time. <laughs> it's ridiculous to spend $20 or something like that. Yeah. Because who has ever complained about pancakes being of different sizes? Pancakes should be of different sizes. And it's another piece of plastic that's going to be in your kitchen that you have to clean and it doesn't bring any additional value. Just cook pancakes. So I think there is a lot of companies out there trying to sell us different things that really doesn't add any happiness at all. But of course, there is a constant bombardment of ads that tell us to buy all sorts of things. I think especially in a US context, you are you are bombarded with uh, a lot of ads that tell you to buy the latest gadget or a certain thing. Otherwise, you'll, you'll never be happy. But yeah, money does matter for happiness, but mainly because being without money is a cause of unhappiness. If we can put food on the table and a roof over our head, of course, that adds a lot to our happiness. But after a certain point, there's really not a lot of things we can buy that will bring additional happiness. It has to do with a sense of connection, a sense of purpose, experiencing flow. Uh, That's what happiness has to do with, not a lot of stuff in our homes. Are you familiar with Target? I hear of it when I listen to podcasts and um, movies and, and so on. Each time you step into a a Target, there are always new things on the shelf, always something that we need that we don't have. And I always tell people, how can you keep up with that? How can you keep up with every time you step foot into a Target, you see something that's visually appealing to you, but I can't buy it all. So how do I actually get focused on creating this space with things that I really love and use? My point is just that you're right. We buy all these things because we think we need them or that they're going to make us happy. But every time we step into a target, we are not happy with what we have because we want and we keep wanting. So it's like we have to stop that cycle before it begins. I completely agree. And I think we are never going to find that thing that is going to make us permanently happy. In happiness research, we often talk about something called the hedonic treadmill, meaning that we constantly raise the bar for what we feel we need in order to be happy. Yes. Within this theme, uh, there was a Roman emperor who was a Stoic called Marcus Aurelius. And I think he described it quite well. He said, happiness is not the possession of a lot of things, but it's the absence of wants. Understanding that is one of the keys to happiness. And doing as you do, I think, is a good step. And perhaps if we're tempted to buy something, 
then postponing it two weeks, six months, also perhaps depending on the budget, because maybe that want will go away or you'll forget about it and focus on something else. When I buy bigger things or when I want bigger things, I typically postpone it and try and tie it in with a sort of memorable milestone or something I want to be mindful of or something I want to to remember. For example, quite a few years ago, when I published my first book, there was a designer chair I really wanted, but I waited until I had published my book, which was six months into the future with buying that chair, because then the chair would be tied to that experience. And it was also a good way to sort of delay gratification in, in terms of getting that chair. But I think those are some of the strategies we can apply. Yes, we might get a quick dopamine fix by buying something, but it's it's very short-lived. Absolutely. I love that you quoted Marcus Aurelius. He says, which is kind of morbid, but he says, kiss your kids goodnight as if they'll be dead in the morning. That is morbid. However, you're not guaranteed tomorrow. It's to not take things for granted, to see what is actually valuable and what we should be pursuing. So I love that you mentioned Marcus Aurelius, but what is something that someone could take away that they could implement today? Like you said, waiting is a great recommendation. I try to do that as well. In the book, I talk a lot about the kitchen and cooking because I mean, the family meal is not under attack, but it's diminishing. So you and, and my generation, most of us will say we have less, fewer family dinners today than when we were growing up. That's the case for the US. It's the case for Denmark. And we can see having frequent family meals is just a wonderful mix of positive effects on our family. More family meals means less risk of obesity. It's a stronger sense of belonging. It's higher grades for teenagers. It has a lot of added benefits. And we spend less and less time cooking, unfortunately. And with the book, I also hope I can get people cooking again, or cooking more. And I'm really interested in how do we make it easy for people and how do we make a lot of dinner time compared to cooking time. So one simple example is there's a really good dinner eating ratio compared to cooking time if people eat artichokes. So artichokes, if you don't know it, it's super fast to prepare because it's less than a minute. You boil some water, add half a lemon, some salt, and the artichokes, and then they boil it for about 40 minutes. But it takes a long time to eat them. It takes one minute to prepare, but you have to peel off each leaf. And being the nerdy number guy I am, you know, I've, of course, measured how long our family dinners are. And when we have artichokes, they last 12 minutes longer. So stuff like that, where we spend time together at the kitchen table, eat healthy good food that is fast to prepare. That's my my go-to advice. A very sort of practical, low-tech advice is also, um, which I think is especially relevant now with the cost of living crisis, is to reduce food waste. That's a big issue in Denmark, the UK. I'm sure it is in the US as well. People throw out in the UK, it's $900 worth of food every year. So I redesigned our fridge. So the most visible shelf we have in the fridge, I call that the retirement shelf. And all the food we need to eat in the next 48 hours, I put there. So it's visible when I open the fridge and I work those ingredients into the recipes for lunch or or dinner. Mm -hmm. So stuff like that, it doesn't have to be complicated. Food is not complicated. It has to do with enjoying the simple pleasures in life. And to me, one of the very basic pleasures is eating and sort of family time connecting with loved ones over some some good food. I'm not alone in that regard. I can see we opened a a happiness museum here in Copenhagen a couple of years ago. And my favorite room is where we have asked people to write down on post-its what happiness is to them. And there is a lot of food there. There is a pizza night. There is mom's apple crumble. There's a lot of relationships, husband, wives, daughters, sons, brothers, etc. So 
despite people coming from a lot of different countries, that is two main ingredients for people in the sort of recipe for happiness, connection and good food. Mm -hmm. So that's always my sort of starting point. Yeah. And what a tie to culture or the past, loved ones. I'm sure that I probably would have put down food as well for something that ties me to, or when I notice that I'm the happiest. That's very interesting. Well, where can they grab a copy of My Huga Home and where can they connect with you online? If people are interested in, in the Happiness Research Institute, then the website, happinessresearchinstitute.com. I'm on different social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, under my name, Mike Viking, which is spelled in a weird way. But Google what you think it sounds like, then then I'm sure I'll pop up. And the book, I guess, most big bookstores and online. Well, this is what I always do with every single guest. I ask them two questions and I didn't prompt you for these. So what has been a beneficial resource to you that you'd like to share with the listeners? Well, one thing would be the World Happiness Report, which is published every year. If I can say one other, it would be what is often talked about in Denmark, something called the ABC for Mental Health, okay. which is, I think is a great universal tip for boosting one's moment-to-moment mood. And ABC stands for Act, Belong, Commit. So doing something active, doing something together with other people, and doing something meaningful. Looking for edible mushrooms with your friends in the forest would take all three boxes, for instance. Okay. Yeah, that's great. I love that. Lastly, what is something that you can't stop talking about? And I'm not letting you say happiness. (laughs) Something with that (laughs) happiness. Food. Food, yeah. But maybe it's also because it's getting late in the afternoon in Denmark and I'm about to prepare dinner. Do you have a favorite food to prepare? Lately, I've been cooking a lot of pasta puttanesca, which is a super simple Italian dish that the whole family loves. And it's sort of super quick. I mean, I can beat any takeaway service in terms of speed for that one. And it's maximum taste in very little time. Great. Well, I will let you go. Enjoy your dinner. Thank you so much for joining me today. This was a wonderful conversation. Thanks, Deanna. What did you think of the episode? I hope you enjoyed the conversation. To learn more about today's guest, including links, resources related to everything discussed today, visit the episode page at minimalistmomspodcast.com, where you can find the entire podcast archive, as well as my book, Minimalist Moms Living and Parenting with Simplicity, or other ways to connect or work with me online. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and leave a rating or review of your favorite episode. Lastly, sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends on social media is very helpful and will encourage others on their journey to think more and do with less.